Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck, the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College, Emory, Virginia. If you are part of a faith community, you may know the frustration of trying to share a new idea and hearing the response, we've never done it that way before. You got the message that this group will not be interested. What would it take to make our faith communities or any group, more open to new ideas. In February of 2012, Reverend Landon Whitsitt, the vice moderator of the Presbyterian Church USA, was the theologian in residence at Tusculum College. I had a chance to speak with him in the studio about his new book, Open Source Church, Making Room for the Wisdom of All. Welcome, Landon. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Why the book Open Source Church? What's wrong with the church that this book needs to be written? (laughs) <laughs> I thought I'd just put it right to You're you. Right. <laughs> Actually, that I mean, that's 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 a great opportunity to really dispel a myth. There's there's really nothing wrong with the church. Uh, the church works great for the folks who are in it. Um, what I try to get across to folks is um, when we're talking about an open source church, which is kind of my cutesy, funny little way of talking about whatever the next phase of church will be. It's not that this next phase of church is right and everything else that came before it is wrong or this is good and everything else is bad. What I try to get across to folks is the open source church or the, the whatever this next church is, it's really an expression of church for folks who don't get church now. Um, church works for a lot of people right now, but for, for my generation and younger, I'm 35 for my generation and younger, we see the world in a very different way. And so therefore we want our institutions, including our churches to work in different ways than they have before. Okay. So what's, what's going on? You're talking about what is church for 35 year olds and under, well, what's different? What's different about being 35 and younger? Well, one of the, one of the main things is we grew up in what uh, I like to call the um, personal computer and, infor- and internet age. Um, you know, often when I speak, I pull my cell phone out of my pocket and I say, I don't know how to live my life without this thing in my pocket. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh-huh. it's really a remarkable thing. You know, remember, you know, remember back when you were a young boy, John, if somebody <laughs> said, you know, what, what is, you know, who was that one guy on that one show and you couldn't think of it, it would drive you nuts forever. Well, I don't have that problem. I automatically pull out my phone and I can type look in, it up. I can look it up and everything's fine. There's a connectedness that comes okay. with the generation that, that I am a part of. Um, and that, that does something to us. Um, infrastructure, technology, all these kinds of things change the way that we view the world, change the way that we interact with the world. And so unlike my grandparents, who really were the builders of of this current form of church, they interacted in a very particular way. Therefore, their institutions looked a particular way. The the uh, the technology that I'm a part of, this, this communication technology, where I can talk to people across the world, um, I, I can meet people who are radically different from I am, radically different from who I am every single day of my life. That's going to change the way that I understand a connectedness, which is really what institutions are. There's just a formal way that we can act. I remember when my my first congregation, uh, and I served it in 1992, but the structure was set up from World War II. 
So they had deacons, and then once you made went through the board as a deacon, then you could advance to being a trustee, and then once you went through that board, then you could become a session elder, which is like the leader. Right. And you had to go through that whole system of steps. And I realized that would be that was exhausting for uh, for me to think about, and, and imagine now that would be almost it would be impossible to think to have the patience. Yeah, I, and and that's kind of the point. I don't want to do that. So yeah. I'd rather just go over here and start my own thing. Right. And that's that's really what the open source ethos is about. Uh, open source comes from this software lingo, okay, talking yeah. about open and closed source software. Um, source code is is the information that tells a computer how to run a particular program. That's really – it's just the information. And open source is, uh, is source code that anybody can look at, anybody can edit. Um, it's like different forms, uh, uh, different forms of um, – uh, like the Firefox web browser. That is an open – open source form of, of, uh, of software, as opposed to these closed source things where only a few people get to know the rules. Um, a lot of the, you know, the situation you just described, that's a very prescribed kind of way of doing church. I'm, I don't want to play that kind of church. So I'm going to go over here and I'm going to do my own, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to have to play by your rules necessarily. I, I, your rules are fine, but, but why should I have to spend all this time learning your rules when there's already something God has called me to be, created me to be, um, why, why can't I just go ahead and do that? Why do I have to spend so, many time, so much time paying dues, as it were? So your book, Open Source Church, then, is a, is a metaphor for, um, in a sense, from the computing world about open source technology and how we can apply that to our institutions, such as a church. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a software geek. That's one of the things that not only am I a church geek, but I'm a software geek. And one day I, I was reading about the open source software movement and the values that it held, and I thought, these sound awfully similar to what I learned in Sunday school. I wonder if there's a way that I could mash these things together. And four years later, here's this book. So what are some of the basics about open source? The, the, the real... Uh, underlying theme of open source software all all has to do with freedom. I mean, it's it's all a discussion about freedom. Who gets to do what? Um, and the software geeks, they talk about it in a couple of different ways. One way that they talk about it is open source as in gratis. Um, I, I will freely give something away to you. They talk about it free as in beer. Here is this mm-hmm. free beer. They also talk about free as in libre. Um, and we, we understand that uh, – Along the lines of freedom of speech, um, you know, Americans, this is what we know when we when we think of the word freedom. This is what we think of. I'm free to do and say and be anything I want to do and say and be, as long as it doesn't impinge upon your right to do and say and be whatever you want to do and say and be. So really, the discussion is all about where does that line get drawn to where your rights and my rights overlap. So the whole notion of open source, the whole notion of open source software, really has to do with with freedom of this technology. How do we make sure that and and I think that the open source geeks would all say um, what we're really trying to figure out is the best way to give this stuff away to make sure that the most people have access to this stuff because we really do believe that technology makes our lives better and so how can we get it in as most hands as possible and so you're thinking as as a minister in a in a, in a congregation or in a congregation that we're Congregations are mostly closed source, meaning that uh, there are just certain avenues of people that have information, but new people come in, they can't start new things, that they've got to go through a lot of process and whatnot to get there. Whereas if we could be more open source, what might be an example of how a congregation would 
be open source as opposed to closed source. Yeah, my uh, a friend of mine, her name's Carol Howard Merritt. She's a pastor in Washington D.C. Talks about the unwritten rules that churches have. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the things that everybody knows about, but nobody nobody says anything. A real cheeky example is, um, you know, your family always sits on the third pew on the right. Always there. That's your pew. There is an unwritten rule that that's where the Shuck family sits. And so therefore, when I come in, I can't sit there because that's that's your pew. Uh, And if I do sit there, well, you know, probably you're going to get mad at me. And I've actually heard stories of people asking other people to get up and move. That's my seat. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. (laughs) You're sitting in my seat. So that's a real cheeky example. But then there are some other things, um, such as my my favorites are always having to do with the worship life of of a particular congregation. And And I like to ask the question, what would you do if somebody who had maybe been worshiping at your congregation for two weeks showed up at your worship committee meeting and said, hey, I've got some really great ideas about how we can make this thing better. Most of us would have a heart attack. I mean, our chest would constrict. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've not been a parish pastor for six months now. I've been attending churches all over the place. I've got a lot of great ideas about what some of those churches can be doing, but I don't think that they would probably welcome my suggestions if I were to just show up one day and say, hey, John, Pastor John, here's, here's how we're going to do this differently. I, I don't think that they would buy that. So you, you've got to have a church that has an ethos that is, that is welcoming to these kinds of intentional reflections and, and critiques. In Willing to for, take some chances, I would imagine. Absolutely. Be permission giving. Mm-hmm. permission granting yeah trying absolutely. some new things absolutely yeah it, it really is that, that that's the key uh if we're gonna if we're gonna move into and and try to reach some of these young adults who see world in what i call an open source way we're really gonna have to give them a lot more permission than we're comfortable with if you're just joining us this is religion for life i'm john shuck and my guest is reverend landon whitsett he is um, a synod executive of the of Mid America, which are a couple of states, Kansas and Missouri. Right, it's kind of a middle governing body within the Presbyterian Church structure. Yes. How many congregations would that oversee? I'd say probably eight hundred. Yeah. Okay. And he's written a book called Open Source Church. Uh, the subtitle, which I really like. Uh, it makes me get Open Source Church now. Making room for the wisdom of all. And you also suggest that uh, the church might learn something from Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia, an online encyclopedia that anyone can edit. And some say that because anyone can edit it, uh, it that's, that's not to be trusted. But you've discovered that it's more likely to be accurate than an encyclopedia controlled by the experts. How does that work? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The reason why people don't like the idea of Wikipedia or Wikipedia in particular is um, they trust themselves. I mean, they're pretty smart. Okay. I, I trust myself. Right. I think I know what I'm talking about. I'm not, to- I'm not so sure that you know what you're talking about. That's where this whole thing really breaks down. That's why people are nervous about this because we trust ourselves. We just don't trust other people. Um, but one of the, the, the one of the things that Wikipedia has discovered, it, its motto is making sure that everyone has access to the sum of all human knowledge. Well, that, that human knowledge has to come from somewhere. And where does it come from? It comes from the everyone who has access. Um, yeah, there have been numerous studies done, uh, particularly pitting Wikipedia against Encyclopedia Britannica on, on, on hard science kinds of, uh, of articles. Wikipedia blows the Encyclopedia Britannica out of the water every single time. And that's because you have got um, professionals in their field, people who have given their lives, say, to geology, spending 
you know, 40, 50 hours a week at their own job and then coming home and dedicating 20 or so hours to Wikipedia, making sure that that information is accurate so that persons in countries where they can't afford maybe some textbooks maybe can't afford a full set of encyclopedias, but they can log on to Wikipedia. They're making sure that those folks have accurate information. We really, I mean, it's a, it's a red herring yeah. when people say that, oh, you can change Wikipedia and it, you're never sure if it's right. Wikipedia is very concerned with making sure that the information they have is verified, authoritative sources. It's not that they're just making stuff up. It's that I don't have to ask you if this is right. We all get to, we all get to contribute what we know that we've, that we've learned to be right into this. And into it's this self-corrective plot. because – because uh, so I, I write something that's crazy. Someone can come along and and it needs to and and can change it. Someone who and who can verify it. Right. Absolutely. There are, there are people who see their only job. Maybe they don't have this PhD in geology, but they see their job as watching articles that get changed. And if something gets changed. They're the people who start asking the questions. Why did this get changed? Is this the right thing? They'll ask somebody that that ostensibly knows the answer. But yeah, there are people who guard this thing. Um, religiously, I mean, no pun intended, they guard it religiously because they want to make sure that the resource they're providing for the world is a good resource. And that's uh, an example then of the idea of wisdom of all. Yeah. Now, the only people that might not have access to that wisdom are people who don't have access to the technology. Right. And Wikipedia is very much concerned with making sure that we bridge that digital divide. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that, they're, that they work on. And and that would be the same for the congregation because we think of that certain people have have the smarts to run the place. But uh, the suggestion that you're offering is actually there are a lot of people uh, that are out that well everybody out there. You got to bring the group in. Yeah, I mean there there are two ways to talk about this. Theologically, we say that God is gathering the women and men necessary to do the work that God has for that congregation to do. So so theologically, I want to say I'm trusting that God knows what God's doing. Sociologically, psychologically, uh, this is based on crowdsourcing theory. Uh, The the, the place where I really did a lot of my springboarding was a book by James Cervecki. He writes the financial page for The New Yorker. He wrote a book called The Wisdom of Crowds. Um, Mm. And, and, and yeah, his, his contention is that chasing the expert is a costly mistake and that he has discovered that a group of normal people can outshine an expert almost every single time. Normal people. You wrote that one of the chapter titles in your book is Leaders Lead, But Experts Do What Exactly? So what's, what's your beef with the experts again? <laughs> the experts, there is no such thing as expert. Okay. None of us. Now, there's a difference between expertise and being an expert. Um, I have some expertise um, in, in certain things. You have some expertise in certain things. But we have this mythological idea that there is one person or a couple of people that are just better than everybody else at everything. And, and, and the reason why we look for these experts is because, well, life is a little crazy right now. Um, the world is, seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe our, in, in relation to the church, maybe our church numbers are dwindling. And if we could just find that one pastor expert who could come in and turn everything around, then life would be golden. But here's what Cervecki says. He, he names, um, he names this, this, uh, th- this phenomenon that if, if we don't have the smarts to get ourselves out of this situation, how are we going to know when we find somebody who actually has the smarts to get us out of the situation. We don't even know to find an expert. We, we don't know enough to even know what an expert looks like. Nobody mm-hmm. knows what experts look like. And Cervecki, he talks about um, the, the old show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I mean, people yeah, you who talk had, about that in your book. And yeah. the, the best people who to get were the... the these are people who had nothing better to do than, than show up at mm-hmm. a, a television studio on a Wednesday afternoon. 
and they outshone the experts. If if you so would, when have, you on on the show when you uh, go what get a, get a help or whatever that is a lifeline, a lifeline, mm-hmm. and the, and the crowd is actually the best lifeline. The crowd was right ninety five percent of the time, as opposed to when you would call. Not sorry, excuse me, ninety one percent of the time, as opposed to when you would call your friend. Like if I were to call John, my friend, you would have been right maybe sixty five percent of the time. The crowd does better almost every single time, and that is because of the diversity. Yeah. That you have to, and then the more diverse crowd that you have, regardless of background, the more likely they are to have uh, a better answer to whatever the problem is going to be. Right, because you and I are going to approach this from from two different contexts. So you're going to have some private information that I don't have, and when we put those things together, when we aggregate our informations, that's that's just that much better. My guest is uh, Reverend Landon Whitsitt. He is the author of Open Source Church, Making Room for the Wisdom of All. You can uh, find, uh, uh, see, he, he blogs at uh, LandonWhitsitt.com. That's spell that last name, W-H-I-T-S-I-T-T. And uh, here's one of my big questions regarding um, uh, church religion so far. It appears that your book advocates seeking the wisdom of all regarding church structures. How far does it go, and how far do you go regarding theological doctrines, God, Jesus, Bible? Are there places that we can push or not, lines you can't cross? Why or why not? Yeah, for me, um, what one of the things that I like to say is um, there is some information that we want to be tried and true. Um, for instance, I fly on planes a lot. I like for the formulas— of thrust and lift that pilots use, I want that to be tried and true. I want them to use the same formula every single time because I like to be able to land safely and go home and see my family. I like that. But there are many things that are not that cut and dry. Um, In the Christian faith, I like to say that there's only one thing that's that cut and dry, and that's the profession that we make that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the only thing, in my opinion, that is cut and dry. If you don't say that, you can't be a Christian. So you have to be able to say that. Everything else, in my opinion, truly is up for grabs. Um, Some people don't like that um, because that's not what so-and-so theologian who lived 200 years ago said, and I'm fine, and I'm okay with that. But when I come to trying to figure out how am I going to live out what I understand Jesus Christ to be calling me to do in this time and in this place, um, just the the reality of my context here and now means that I'm going to have to ask some questions that that theologian didn't answer or didn't ask. Um, I also live within a community. So you and I live in this thing together and you and I are trying to do this together. How far does it go? However far you and I are comfortable with it going. I mean, honestly, because um, yeah, we could think about open source, we think about um, the idea of the wisdom at all. We could we could challenge some some major things and mm-hmm. say, well, I'm not sure. We learn from different places. We right. could all we could we could put it to, put it to places that we never thought it could go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the things that I believe is is, is that God is God is in control of all this stuff. So if there's good information out there, I believe that God put it there. I believe that it's that all truth is God's truth. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna worry. If, if some really great theological or church ideas uh, come from some other place other than a Christian source, I'm not going to worry about that because I'm going to trust. If it's good, it's God. My guest, uh, Landon Whitsitt, author of The Open Source Church, Making Room for the Wisdom of All. Also the vice moderator of the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. Let's talk a little bit about the Presbyterian <laughs> Church. Uh, Presbyterian 
conjures up images of old conservative bankers and musty church basements uh, for many of us. And yet you have a tattoo on your arm of the Presbyterian symbol, and that seems to make you, uh, at the same time, both hip and square. Yes. (laughs) And you're also a musician. You create music for worship that includes uh, melodies to centuries-old canticles, and I'm thinking that that there's kind of a a mixture uh, capturing the wisdom of the ages in a new melody. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I like to call... uh, one of the things that I often like to say about myself is that I'm a, I'm an agent of change yearning to preserve tradition. Okay. That's what I want to do. There is, there is wisdom from the ages. I mean, 2,000 years of, of history, people aren't getting it all wrong. So there's got to be something to it. There's got to be. And this has changed so many lives. There's got to be something amazing there. And so I want to get to... Uh, I, I want to get to the heart of what the Christian faith, uh, what, what I understand the Christian faith to be about, and I want to figure out how to live that right now today. So, you know, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I want to, I want to get that baby out, dry it off, put put some clothes <laughs> on it, and and get moving. You know, I think about you, you. You said you were 35, and and I think of my nieces and nephews, and and my sisters-in-law, um, on my wife's side, all about that same age. And I'm thinking that that age group to me is like. Not necessarily hostile to religion or Christianity, but just really not interested. Yeah. Just and 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 perhaps there might be more of an interest if there was some ownership. Mm. Would that be Would that be right? You're thinking if if people felt that they actually had a voice in in all of this religion business and could doubt. I I don't know about your experience, but when I went to seminary, I was told we got the message. The message is, um, you know, don't don't say these things because they won't get it. Uh, they don't want to hear about historical criticism that'll just bore them or it'll challenge their faith. And I thought I, I disobeyed, but I, and I think that's been a good thing because I think people really have have the skills to be able to challenge and doubt and. and I often joke my church is bring your BYOG, bring your own God. I mean, go ahead and, and uh, make it your, your own. And, and that seems to be something that would be with the, with the younger generation that is definitely, if you can look up, look up anything, you can edit Wikipedia, you ought to be able to go and, and make some changes. Right, here. yeah, I, I asked the question. I, I can edit the world's largest encyclopedia, but you're going to make me sit down and shut up in your church and just right. do what you tell me to do. That, that just doesn't, that doesn't really jive. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've said for a, quite a long time in, in, in the church world, we, you know, we talk about traditional versus contemporary or liberal versus conservative and everybody has had an opinion about which one is the one that's driving all the kids away. And I want to tell them it has nothing to do with that. Yeah. I know 35 and youngers who are traditional and conservative and liberal and, and contemporary. What we care about is how much ownership we get to have in this thing. How open or closed are you? Are you willing to accept my ideas or not? Are you willing to engage me as a full human being or do you just want me to be a pawn in your chess game of life? That's really what we're, that, that's really why a lot of my generation is rejecting religion, I think. The Presbyterian Church uh, this last year, USA, after decades of struggle, removed the barriers that prohibited uh, entrance to the ministry for those who were not in a heterosexual marriage or a single chaste. That prohibition uh, kept away people in same-sex relationships. The barrier is gone. What are the changes that you see in the works because of this? What are the changes in the works? Well, people who, in my opinion, have always obviously been called to ministry can now serve in ministry. Uh I mean, it's really that simple. Um, you know, I, I, just because I happen to be gay and now get to serve, that doesn't mean anything for your church. You, you all can still operate however you want to operate. What it means is that the circle gets to be a little bit wider. And I think that that's always a good thing. 
And that's got to be also a good thing when you think about younger generations because that's just really not an issue. Oh, d- yeah. I mean, th- th- to be sure, there's always exceptions to the rule, and there are there are you know younger folks who are very strident about it. But on the whole, uh-huh. they're the the critical mass of young adults. This is not even a, inter interfaith stuff. And the the gay and lesbian discussions, we're like, who cares? We've answered this already. Can we move on to can we can we go help some poor people? We don't want to argue <laughs> these stupid arguments. There are kids dying from starvation. Can we go do something about that instead? Well, that's another question I was thinking about. Landon Whitsitt is my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, his book is called An Open Source Church, uh, Making Room for the Wisdom of All. I recommend it. It's great. Uh, you know, but whenever I read a book. Uh, or an article that worries over the state of the church and how to grow the church or whatever, I think, is it that big of a deal? I mean, faced with climate change, peak oil, poverty that you're talking about, uh, war, population overshoot, whatever happens to the Presbyterian church has got to be down the list, 100 right. maybe, <laughs> 90, I don't know. If we're even that important. If we're that important. So tell me about the relevance of the church in light of of the wisdom for all. Yeah, I I, I think that the church... Um, has something to offer in that our founder, Jesus Christ, made it his mission to make sure that the least of these um, were were treated well, that the least of these were cared for. Um, Our problem, I think, is that we've gotten way far away from that. In the end, that's... uh, that, that's what we're about. Jesus said himself, you know, I came to make sure that people were set free, mm-hmm. made sure that the, that the hungry had food, made sure that the blind could see, that the naked were clothed. Uh, later in another gospel, he told you, I, I'm here to make sure that you can live an abundant life. We've, uh, for some reason, we've forgotten all that kind of stuff. Uh, we thought that our job was to, you know, make big professions about birth control or something. I don't know yeah. why, we, why we've gotten off on that. But um, there are, there are, Wars happening, people are dying, people are going hungry, uh, people are getting murdered. I mean, I'm a theologian. I'm a big. I, I like. I like to trade in big ideas. So I like thinking and I like theology. But at the end of the day, I would be more concerned about whether or not you've got food in your belly than whether or not you understand my theological insights into Jesus Christ. I really don't care. I'm more concerned that you've got something to eat. Um, and so. I, I think that the, the import for religion, the import for religious people in general, and Christians in specific, is if we can get back to that understanding that what our what all of our founders were really talking about was taking care of our fellow human beings, then I then I think we've got we've got some important roles to play in the future of uh, in the future of humanity. And one of the ways of of making those decisions about what we can do specifically is to open up that conversation. Um, when you say wisdom for all, I'm thinking of, of all the voices of those who traditionally have not had voice. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's really the critical piece. Um, it, this is, religion and Christianity in general is typically run by old white guys in a suit. Yeah. And that is not going the, – the, the, the faith now has moved to the south, to folks who do not have pale skin like you and I. That means something very specific. Um, their their voices have historically been silenced. They've not had a big seat at the table. Um, so that's going to challenge some notions that we have, specifically in North America. It's going to challenge some notions about what we think the Christian faith is about and what the church should be doing. And I think we really need to give an ear to that. In our context right now, it happens to be our gay and lesbian sisters and brothers who have mm-hmm. been disenfranchised from the community. We now have to give special attention to them. Um, 
even now we don't do this well. I mean, how long has it been that, that women have had equal rights in our churches and we're still not listening to the wisdom of our sisters, right? Yeah. Um, uh, our our African-American sisters and brothers, and we're still not listening to them. We're not going to do this well for a long time, but we at least need to acknowledge that it's now time to do it, particularly when it comes to our gay and lesbian friends. My guest uh, on Religion for Life is Landon Whitsitt. Open Source Church is his book, uh, Making Room for the Wisdom of All. And we're just about out of time. Um, is there? You're a musician. Is there a popular song that captures the ethos of your book? What would it be? The only thing coming to mind is uh, is uh, We Are Family. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. Sister Sledge. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> Landon, thank you for being with me. Thank you. It was a joy, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Schack, the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. More information about my congregation can be found at fpcelizabethton.org. Information about Religion for Life, including upcoming shows and podcasts, are available at religionforlife.me. Follow Religion for Life on Facebook and Twitter. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well. Be well.